This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back for another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we're at a southeastern fortress, Walmer Castle. 1539 to 40, Henry VIII is really worried about the prospect of an invasion by the French or the Spanish, that he starts to build artillery forts like this one all around the east and south coasts. We also find out how a series of gardens took root here. We've got in the bottom end of the garden that sort of contemporary installation with the Queen Mother's Garden. This is a wonderful counterbalance and you've got this great natural, quiet, peaceful sort of location which is very informal. And we'll hear how one area has been brought back to life. Plenty more to come on that shortly. But first, here's what's coming up on future episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. Coming to the top of a hill is it's a, it's a, it's a trope throughout history in terms of holiness. And, and that, would have, that won't have been just a Christian or an Islamic thing. That would have gone back way, 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 way. Because you, you're, you're close to the sky. She was somebody who worked very hard for her entire life, working her way up from a farmer's daughter in rural Devon to cooking for the aristocracy in a time when it was very, very rare indeed for women to reach that level of their profession. The Kenwood Estate is on the edge of Hampstead Heath and it is a really beautiful place to come, particularly on a lovely spring day when all the blossom is coming out. Now, have you ever heard of an artillery fort having its own gardens? Let's face it, flowers, lawns and sculpted hedges aren't what you'd normally associate with an austere fortress. But that's precisely what greets you at Walmer Castle, where some of the gardens have been recently undergoing a revamp. Fittingly, you'll also find Walmer Castle in Kent, the county also known as the Garden of England. And it's there that I've travelled to meet two of the experts Mark Brent, head gardener, Walmer Castle. Paul Patterson, senior historian, English Heritage. Who've worked together on the project. Mark, we've just come in through the gate there. The moat is no longer a moat, it's now a lawn. It's weird, you walk in, you almost think, wow, some rich king from the past has decided that he didn't want a moat and he's now turned it into a massive, beautiful garden. It's it's quite a stunning sight. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of a, a castle that's now set in a sort of green sea rather than actually sort of a, a, what people envisage as a defensive moat full of water or obstacles. So, yeah, it's, it's now a very sort of pleasant landscape and it's sort of has softened the castle into the surrounds. What's it like for you to come to work every day and open up? Pretty magical, really. You know, I'm usually here sort of half past seven in the morning and I, I've got the place to myself, so you've just got the bird song and just the peace and the quiet and the tranquility before the sort of day's activity starts. An interesting thing as well, Paul, if I can bring you in, is that we're kind of at the end of a, a, a residential area. I drive down the road, there's a couple of cul-de-sacs, and then suddenly there's a castle at the end. When Warmer Castle was first built, 1539 to 1540, there wasn't anything here. And it's only in the last 150, 200 years that Walmer and Deal have grown to such an extent that they now come fairly close to the castle. When it was first built, it was fairly isolated on the edge of, a, of the beach. Yeah, a beautiful spot if you're a, a royal or even working in the military. <laughs> but of course, you've got to watch out for the French and the Spanish. Indeed you do. And that's the very reason why the place was built. So. 1539 to 40, Henry VIII is really worried about the prospect of an invasion by the French or the Spanish. 
that he starts to build artillery forts like this one all around the east and south coasts. And here he built three, Walmer, Deal and Sandown, to protect a two and a half mile long beach that would have served as an easy landing place for you know, a determined army. And just offshore, there's a really important anchorage where hundreds of ships could have safely anchored to facilitate that process. So that's why Walmer Castle is actually here. OK, well, let's move on a little bit, and then uh, I'll ask you a bit more about the military history, which you were just touching on there. OK, Mark, you've taken us a little bit further around the path. We can see the castle looming up here in front of us, and there's the uh, hedgerow behind as well. But if we turn the other way, we're looking down another set of parallel hedgerows, and what looks like... Are these vines? Uh, no, these are actually espalier apple trees grown in a very traditional format. We're now stood in the middle of our historic kitchen garden, which is actually the oldest part of the gardens, and it still remains to this day a productive kitchen garden. We grow fruit and vegetables for the castle. These days for our visitors rather than anybody notable, although the Lord Warden still gets his share from the garden. But this really is the origin of the whole garden, and that's really where the sort of garden has expanded out from. But there's always been a need here for, to produce fresh vegetables and produce to either serve the garrison or latterly us. So that's the origin of the garden, but uh, in terms of the history, take us back to when it all started and who built this place? Who built Walmer Castle? Well, it was built by Henry VIII, but the bit that we're standing on, the origin of the garden, as Mark's just explained, is a little bit later than that. From 1539, it serves as a military garrison and it, it continues to do so for 275, 300 years. But in the middle of that process, there's a bit of a change starts to happen. And there's a person called Lionel Sackville, who is the Duke of Dorset. He's from Knoll, a big house in Kent. And he is Lord Warden of the Sink Ports. So he has responsibility for this castle and all the other castles along the coast. He suddenly decides that he might like to come down here more often than he usually did and use it as a bit of a seaside retreat. And so he starts to begin to change it from just being a coastal fort into an occasional place where he would spend some time. And that's why he has this garden laid out. So in the 1730s, that's when Lionel Sackville is interested in this place. And he lays out this kitchen garden. That is the origin of the, the whole ornamental landscape here. Militarily, and you mentioned the, the sink ports there, or the sank ports, I suppose. The sink ports. But it's a French word, isn't it? It's a French word. Sank but, meaning but, five. But the, 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 the sank ports organisation still survives as a kind of uh, ceremonial body, and it insists that the word is sink and not sank. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Had a problem. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but what, what did the sink ports actually do? The sink ports. Uh, it's a very old organisation and it originated in late Anglo-Saxon times, so before 1066. And it's a defensive trading alliance and a group of towns that got together along the south coast to ensure their mutual defence, but also to further their trading interests. They become so powerful and so wealthy that the King of England relies on them to provide ships and crews in times of war. They have lots of ships because they're trading right across the you know the North Sea and into the Mediterranean and so they become so powerful that they can in some senses make or break the king they become too powerful 
So the king appoints this person in the 13th century for the first time called the Lord Warden and his job is to be the bridge between the crown and the government and the Singh port and to control their activities. And so it emerges this individual becomes a powerful person in this region to control the Singh ports. He has military authority, so he controls the garrisons of all these forts, including Walmer. He has naval authority to defend the coast, and he also has legal jurisdiction over the Singh ports in order to control them. And that post continued, well, it still, it still exists today, it's a ceremonial post, but until the middle of the 19th century, it still had real power. And the residence, the official residence of the Lord Warden of the Singh ports became Warmer Castle in the 1730s. And it's a considerable sized structure as well that we're looking at. I mean, I mean, how many men would be stationed here during its heyday? Well, surprisingly enough, not very many. The garrison here was about 19, including the captain, the person in charge. He was appointed by the Lord Warden. But if you think about it as a caretaker garrison, they're here to keep watch and in times of alarm or imminent invasion a lot more soldiers would have been brought in levied from the local towns part-timers or even professionals to defend it properly because if you think there might be 40 or 50 heavy guns here you need a lot of people to operate them and so they have to be brought in when trouble threatens they have other roles as well. They are here to enforce the Lord Warden's will in the activities that he has to pursue. So things like wreck and salvage, he has rights over shipwrecks and the cargoes therein. And so they were involved in activities such as gathering those cargoes, impounding them, and then going through a legal process to try and find their owner. If they didn't find their owner, they belonged to him. Fascinating. Okay, let's move to another spot, shall we? Mark, you very kindly brought us up from the castle edge, up the path, into a really big green flat space, which I guess you could almost have a a croquet lawn on. Yeah, we've just stepped up through the croquet lawn, past our sort of ornamental terraces, and now we're in the original sort of William Pitt's original landscape. This is really what the project is about, you know, the revival of that landscape and improving the quality of it over the next few years. So what would it have looked like in his time? What what sort of year are we talking? We're really talking at the back end of the 18th century, early 19th century, when he was resident here for for a few years. It would have been much more of an open landscape. He really was one of the first people to sort of enclose the garden properly and set out the boundaries as we know today with the sort of perimeter shelter belts and creating sort of selective areas of enclosed grasslands, whether that was used for ornamentation or for grazing animals. So looking ahead as we're standing here, we've got a few trees to our right and left. We've got a sea of daffodils to our right and left immediately and then a, a, a long path which goes up to a statue and then more a wide open space how would this have looked in pit days radically different this would have been much more open the trees would have been more congregated around the fringes of a large open meadow one of the reasons for the project is is that we're actually now trying to sort of redefine that landscape this 
particular part of the garden I wouldn't say has been neglected it's more lost its identity and that's really about as you can see the accoutrements we're looking towards the statue of Mercury which would have been put in probably by Lord Beecham in the 20th century so various Lord Wardens have come along and added their little bits Earl Granville in the mid 19th century would have planted more of an arboretum and tried to adapt the space to his own sort of ends and his own fashion and style so it's really now editing that landscape to sort of try and bring back that identity of Pitt's landscape and the sort of historic parklands that he was trying to sort of imitate from other sources. So this, I don't know whether this is a question for you Mark or whether it's for you Paul, but at what stage did the garden start, shall we say, falling in decline a little bit? I don't know whether it's decline really. I, I, I think any garden that's been around for a couple of hundred years inevitably, as Mark says, has different influences on it, and that includes the influence of nature, of course. Uh, And it depends how much subsequent Lord Wardens were interested and what their interests were. So the difficulty that Mark and myself and the rest of the team have in doing this work is deciding, well, what is the basis? You know, what did William Pitt do? How can we intervene to try and recreate the essence of that without destroying everything that's been done since so that's really the essence of the project and it's quite a difficult thing to do so did you have to research together and go into the archives and start looking up plans and that sort of thing of course yeah i mean you know both mark and i and others have done considerable research on walmer castle looking in national and local archives reading the letters and journals of people who either lived here or visited here for those little snippets of information that can give us a clue as to what planting was done when so it's been quite a complicated process to be able to do that I have to say that the evidence is not always wonderful and we have to interpret and interpolate from those little pieces of evidence but also what survives today. So it's an iterative, careful, thoughtful process. I'm not saying that we get it exactly right but you know we're hopeful that what we're actually going to do is to recreate the essence of what William Pitt intended while not interfering too much with the the important things that have been done since. Yeah, as, as Paul says, you know, there, there's been differing management processes going on here, over the, especially over the last hundred years. In the early days, in Pitt's day, yeah, the Lord Warden played much more of an important role in the gardens and were providing the finance and the initiative to actually create the landscapes. Latterly, you've had people like the Ministry of Works who've kind of managed the landscape, subsequently ourselves at English Heritage. And so it's understanding those processes and, as Paul says, you know, how we've arrived at this point if we're looking to renovate the landscape you know making sure we don't edit out you know significant things that perhaps have importance and finding that evidence to make sure that we know why it's there one of the good things of doing all the research that we have now is actually collating it together in a a conservation management plan so that my sort of successors have an understanding of what's here we're not searching through filing cabinets and dusty drawers to sort of understand who did what, when and why. So it's now there, we have a context of, you know, and we can understand the purpose and the direction and how we want to sort of take this forward for future generations to enjoy. Great, well let's move on to another area of the garden which you're working on. Where are we heading now? We'll head up towards the Glen, which really is, is, is the cornerstone of the whole project. It's one corner off the parkland that has fallen into considerable disrepair. As we're walking up through, 
the terrain of the garden changes considerably. We're going slightly uphill and we're getting more onto sort of chalk downlands. One big legacy that Pitt did leave is this sort of slightly open space of a meadow. We're trying to remove one or two sort of uh, undesirable trees that have sort of sprung up over the years, uh, seedlings of birch, to sort of open up the meadow a bit more. But we have a very important example of chalk downlands, very species-rich grassland here, full of orchids and wildflowers in the summer. And it's for our ecology purposes, you know, a really wonderful little oasis in the middle of Walmer. So is this the newly installed staircase? Yeah. Which has been done as part of the restoration project? In terms of the restoration, and we stood here at the top of the Glen, we've worked on this over the last sort of 18 months. This is an impressive view, I must say. We're standing at the top of a metal staircase, which turns, got a bit of a dog leg at one end and then drops down to the lower levels. It's amazing, actually, that suddenly we've climbed up a hill and then there's a massive, almost chasm right at the bottom of the garden. It's almost like a little secret garden or something, isn't well, it? Well, precisely, yeah. It, it's actually a chalk pit. It was a, a, a quarry until the late 18th century, and they were taking chalk out of here to use in building, mainly for making lime. But it was abandoned, and it was kind of embarrassingly at the end of the garden that William Pitt was creating, and they decided to do something about it. And oh. so his niece who was living here at the time, Lady Hester Stanhope, helped him to create something of a garden here. So in 1805, they begin planting the chalk pit ornamentally. Ah. We don't know a great deal about it. We, I was about we, to say, we, we, what, we know that what, she, what she was in there? well evergreens, as far as we know. But that's as much as we have. We have about five letters that she wrote to various people, and there are snippets of information in between the normal gossip between people who were writing letters to each other of what she was doing here. They were trying to mitigate a very highly alkaline scar on the landscape, really. So they were using whatever could tolerate those conditions. Yew trees, beech, firs, gorse, ivy, ferns. So we pretty much have a fair range and coverage of, of, of what they would have been planting. Should we go down the steps? Having reached the bottom of the steps, I can really see that we're really in the gully, so to speak, and there's a house at the top there. That's probably about another 20 feet above us, but another, I don't know, 100 or so feet in the distance. Well, there's an interesting, potential interesting story about that because ah. there were so many people staying at Warmer Castle when William Pitt was resident at certain times that he had to have overspill accommodation. Ah, and that and was that? We think that building is his overspill accommodation. And of course, if you were a pretty important person staying there in the early 1800s with William Pitt and you were looking out onto a chalk pit, it would be potentially you know, quite embarrassing, really. And so this might have been laid out more with an eye to relating to that building than the castle itself. I must say, yeah. I'm very much reminded of the Bruce Springsteen track Secret Garden walking around here. Yeah. Basically standing here, it is an utter transformation. When I first arrived here four years ago, you couldn't actually walk through here. You know, you I came... See, could yeah, you? It, it you couldn't see so anything. Yeah. It was dark. Mm. The brambles would have been three metres high. You know, I kind of went through here with our regional landscape manager at the time, and we just kept falling into holes because we just couldn't see what was in front of us. 
And also there's been a significant amount of, of ivy removal, some of the size of the ivy growing up the trees. I mean, it was, it'd been growing there for the best part of 150 years and was as sort of thick as someone's leg. Wow. So really through the project, you know, putting in the staircases enabled us to get in here and start actually looking after it and caring again. We've got in the bottom end of the garden a more modern contemporary installation with the Queen Mother's Garden, which is very formal. This is a wonderful counterbalance and you've got this sort of great sort of natural, quiet, peaceful sort of location, which is, you know, very informal. What's your favourite part of the project been? Uh, I think it was just the reveal, just bringing something back to life and uh, inviting one or two locals in here who've peered over the edge for you know, 60, 70 years. And it's been a revelation watching the sort of pleasure on their faces. And it's like, wow, you know, I've always wanted to know what was in here and what it must have been like. I can see the pleasure in your face as well. You're getting pretty enthusiastic about it. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a sort of, you know, there is a sense of achievement. As Paul said, you know, we've gone back to the beginning and probably doing what Pitt and Stanhope you know, were aiming to achieve at that time and hopefully this time there'll be a longer legacy. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about Walmer Castle or plan a visit to see its pleasure gardens, head to the Walmer Castle page of the English Heritage website. We're back next week for another step into England's story in the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and see you next time.